It is good to be here amongst you to see all your wonderful faces, even if they are behind masks. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you for the warm welcome, uh, Pastor Taylor. Thank you, church, for receiving me again amongst you. And I am excited about what the Lord is going to do over this next year. It, indeed, it is a joy. Um, and I am grateful to God, um, especially the under shepherds of this branch of Zion, um, to Pastor Taylor and Pastor John, and to each and every one of you. Um, it is an undeserved honor. It is an opportunity. It's always um, really a, a great uh, privilege uh, to stand in this role, to stand behind the sacred desk, to bring the word of God to the people of God. And I'm particularly excited about the opportunity to learn more about what it means to be a pastor um, during this residency here at Incarnation. And so I'm excited about what the Lord is going to do over the next weeks and months and year. Um, but I must admit, I am a little scared. I have some trepidation about what is to come. And that is because I feel the weight of this responsibility uh, to care for the souls, the eternal souls of people is no small thing. Um, it is a great responsibility. And I also feel the burden of expectation the burden um, of expectation to not only be good at this, but to be great. Not just ordinary, but be extraordinary. By God's grace alone, I've had the joy of opening the word of God behind this sacred desk, and we have beheld the resplendent beauty of Jesus Christ together. But while you may be familiar with my preaching ministry, you're not familiar with me as a counselor or an encourager or exhorter or even a disciplinarian. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I give the wrong advice? What if a sermon falls flat or prayer doesn't quite hit? What if I fall short of expectation? What if I'm actually not cut out for this pastoring thing? What if I'm just ordinary? Now, I don't know if there's anybody out there who feels like I do this morning. Maybe you also feel the weight of expectation to be the perfect mom or the ultimate husband or the best student or the most productive worker. Maybe you've been striving for that Instagram perfect life and just can't seem to get there. Maybe you keep naming, but you ain't claiming. Well, I got good news for weary souls this morning. It's a word for me as much as it is for you. And it is this, we have permission to be ordinary. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Let me just pause quickly for station identification. Um, I'm black. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Um, and one of the things I love about being black is the black preaching tradition. For those who are, you are new to incarnation, I get this spiel my first time. So I'm just a, ref a refresher, okay? 
think of it as that. So one of the things I love about being black is a black preaching tradition. And one of the elements of the black preaching tradition is that it is characterized by it being dialogical. That's just a fancy way of saying that the work of preaching is a dialogue. It's a conversation between pulpit and pew, right? Between teacher, the text, and students. In other words, when you hear the word of God, there should be a response, okay? And when the word hits in a kind of way, whether it hurts or it encourages, there should be a response. In other words, let me get an amen. amen. So if you hear something that hits you right in the spot, whether it hurts or it feels good, you can talk back to me, okay? All right? You, you are free to talk back to me. Y'all feel me? All right, let's get into it. And I think, you know, you heard it uh, read in your hearing already from Galatians 5, verse 14 through 24. And if you would open your Bibles, click or scroll to it right now. So I was saying that we have permission to be ordinary. And that is the revelation of our text this morning as it speaks about the ordinary Christian life and how it works. And that's our big idea. That is, the ordinary Christian life is marked by the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit, such that character traits that are extraordinary to the human person, that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, these become the ordinary virtues of the Christian life. All right, let's pray right quick, and then we'll dive right in, okay? Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence this morning. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would illuminate the word for us, that we may see you. We may see Christ exalted, Christ lifted. Lord God, that I may decrease and you may increase. Lord, let your people be built up, be encouraged, be exhorted, um, be challenged by your word. And Lord, let it go forth and accomplish the reason it is sent forth for. We bless your holy name, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I love the fact I love the fact that while the gospel is ripe with big and eternal truths like justification and atonement and forgiveness and freedom, the way it's actually lived out is by walking. And what could be more ordinary than walking? And I think that is why Paul chose this term in verse 16 of our text, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The, the word for walk here, peripateo, is meant to communicate an all-encompassing and yet common activity. It's actually one of Paul's favorite words to describe the practical Christian life. We see it over and over in Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Thessalonians. Now, in the historical and cultural context, the students of Aristotle who followed their teacher, they were called the peripatetics, the walkers. Their, their life was marked by their teacher. They walked with him and they walked after him. Now, as applied to the Christian life, this, world, this word helps us to see that walking is the essence of ordinary Christianity. 
It means that we take the teachings of Jesus, the, the life of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, and so incorporate them into our lives that our lives look more and more like him. We walk like he walked. We act like he acted. Paul stated it this way in Ephesians 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice unto God. Now the key, the key is not making the Christian life more complicated than it ought to be. It is a simple and yet transformational is being an imitator, imitator of God by walking in love and in light of how Christ has loved you. Christianity is as simple and yet profound as living like Jesus in every area of life. If, if you're a child, thank you. If you're a child, you live like Jesus as you relate to your siblings as you obey your parents, as you honor your teachers, and as you play with your friends. If you're a teenager, you live like Jesus in how you hang out with your friends and how you respond to your parents and what you post online and how you act on the basketball court or the soccer field in the classroom or behind the counter at Chick-fil-A. If you're a college student, the ordinary Christian life is as simple and profound as living like Jesus in your frat or your sorority, when you're tailgating before the big game, in your conversations, when you're out on Friday night, and in what decisions you make regarding moral issues. If you're a single adult, you live like Jesus in the friends you make and keep, in how carry yourself at work, in how you handle the dating scene, in how you battle loneliness. If you're married, you live like Jesus in how you love your spouse in all of his or her imperfections, how you selflessly care for your children, and how you conduct yourself at work and in your neighborhood. If you're a retiree, you live like Jesus in how you steward your time and resources. And if you're a pastoral resident, you live like Jesus in how you seek to know nothing amongst the people except Christ and him crucified. Not grasping for lofty speech or human wisdom, but resting in the finished work of Christ and working from that rest. The, the point here is simply that the Christian life is something that works as it is walked. Do, don't underestimate the power and impact of simply living like Jesus every day in every arena. And, and, and don't make the mistake of thinking that the Christian life is just about the major decisions. It is that, but even more so, the Christian life is about the thousands of decisions you make every day. The Christian life is a walk. And I eagerly look forward to walking alongside you over this next year, in the power of the Holy Spirit, being conformed to the image of Christ, to the glory of God the Father. So, what does the fruit of the Spirit teach us about the ordinary life of a Christian? I got three things for you, and I'm going to take my seat, all right? The first is that the Spirit fruit of the ordinary life of the Christian is the assurance of salvation. 
In, in verse 19 through 21, Paul lists 15 common sin issues that are naturally not associated with being a follower of Jesus. He calls these the evident works of the flesh. In other words, this is the ordinary flesh life. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I mean, these are the things why we need laws, why, why we need police and the courts and prisons. These are the things that dominate the evening news every night. It's what's wrong with us. And Paul draws a clear line in the sand by saying, I warn you, as I warned you before, in verse 21, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that means there's an ethic or a morality that is directly connected to the ordinary Christian life. In other words, the ordinary Christian life is not characterized by sexual sin or idolatry or sorcery or enmity or strife or jealousy or fits of anger or rivalries or dissensions or divisions or envy or drunkenness or, or anything else like it. That means that the Christian life is a moral life. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians live perfectly. We can and do sin, sometimes royally. But there is something important here because Christianity is tied to morality. Theology creates ethics. And the ordinary pattern of the Christian life is marked by biblical morality. Verse 21 is very clear. Those who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. So if the ordinary pattern of your life is marked by immorality, then you are simply not a Christian. Now, the direct opposite of the immorality is the fruit of the spirit that's identified in verses 22 to 23. The contrast between the two lists could not be any clearer. The ordinary Christian life is marked by the fruit of the spirit, not the works of the flesh. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, notice a few things about this. First, it's not a list of fruits. Rather, it is all one fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is not a fruit stand where you select individual fruit. This is a singular fruit with multiple expressions. Second, The other thing is that while the immoral list focused on actions, the fruit of the Spirit is focused on character. The fruit of the Spirit is about who you are. And then third, by talking about the fruit of the Spirit versus the work of the Spirit, Paul is identifying that the fruit is something that's produced through the power of the Spirit. The fruit may be expressed in a believer's life, but he or she is not the source. The spirit is the catalyst behind the fruit. The fruit is what ordinary Christian life looks like. And so ultimately, spirit fruit is actually not evidence of spiritual maturity. Rather, it is evidence of genuine conversion. True Christians 
live in the spirit, not in the flesh. And that spirit life is evidenced by spirit fruit. Notice also here Paul's, how he closes this argument. It's the coup de grace of the passage. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, in verse 24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Belonging to Christ means that the followers of Jesus are of Jesus Christ. You are his. His death is your death to sin. His life is your life everlasting. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8, 14, that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, that the Spirit himself testifies within us, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Indeed, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Jerry Packer, in his wonderful book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, summarizes the ministry of the Holy Spirit this way. He says, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry at this or any time in the Christian era is to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, everything about the Holy Spirit's role is to make Jesus known. Tim Keller says that if you were to walk in the Holy Spirit's room, all you would see are pictures of Jesus. Not LeBron James, right? Not the newest Power Ranger or Beyblades that my kids are into right now. It'll all be pictures of Jesus. He stands Jesus all day, every day. His Instagram is just Jesus, 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 Jesus. So it's the Spirit's mission to glorify the Father by making much of Jesus. And you see, when a person receives Christ as Lord and Savior, he or she also receives the Spirit. Because to have Christ is to have the Holy Spirit. And to have the Spirit means that you are a son of God and that you are sealed as God's children. Therefore, to walk by the Spirit means that the Christian life is birthed, empowered, encouraged, guarded, and continued through the personal presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Jesus lives within you. And it means, it means that the Christian life is as simple as living under the authority, the influence, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is as ordinary as using the means which the Holy Spirit works to keep us walking. That is Bible reading, prayer, community, the Lord's Supper, fasting, giving, service, corporate worship. It means coming to realize that we have everything we need to live a life of godliness right now and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit fruit means you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you belong to Jesus. Your salvation is secured and assured. Praise be to God. The second thing we see here is that spirit fruit in the ordinary life of the Christian is freedom from the law. So after listing the fruit of the spirit, Paul adds this clause, against such there is no law. And then that may seem a curious phrase if you weren't keyed into the central thesis of Paul's letter to the Galatians. That is that those who place their trust in Christ Jesus are no longer under the old Jewish ceremonial laws requiring circumcision and eating kosher. 
And now the entire book of Galatians is written with this theme of freedom in mind. And in verses 16 through 24, it is the application of the expression of what it means to have freedom in and through Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you a couple places where this theme surfaces. Look at verse 13 of our chapter. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, so one another. Look at verse 1 of the same chapter. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the freedom that Paul is talking about here is the foundational principle that righteousness is given by God to those who put their faith in God. By trusting in Christ Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sin, God frees you from guilt and condemnation and the penalty of your sin. Because through Christ, people are forgiven. Now, the starting point of the ordinary Christian life is this freedom. Christianity doesn't work unless you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. There has to be a foundational relationship with Jesus because the very foundation of Christianity is freedom, which is bought by Christ and which is received by faith. A few years back, I I remember being riveted by this historical drama that was directed by Steven Spielberg called um, The Amistad. I don't know how many of y'all saw that. I was surprised to learn, like, it's over 20 years old now. I'm surely not that old. But the Amistad was a slave ship um, headed to the New World when the captured Africans, 53 Mendy, um, revolted, took over the ship, and they spared the lives of two officers. And they demanded that they turn the ship around and take them back to the southwest coast of West Africa from, from whence they had come. Instead, the captors tricked them and sort of sailed them to the U.S. where they were recaptured, treated as runaway slaves, and put on trial. And that trial was pretty interesting. Um, There were different people that made claims on these image bearers of God. Queen Isabella of Spain claimed the Africans were Spanish property. You know, La Amistad was a Spanish ship, and President Martin Van Buren actually appointed the then Secretary of State to represent the interests of Spain in the trial. Then you had the two Navy officers who actually found the Amistad and captured it before making landfall. They claimed the Africans as salvage. And then you had the two Spanish officers that were spared. They presented their proof of purchase. Everyone made their claim for enslaving these people, these image bearers of God. The many themselves, of course, had a claim on their own freedom. But they were amongst the people whose language they did not speak. And everything was strange, and they were lost. They had survived the horrors of the Middle Passage, only to face a court system rigged against them. But the leader of the Mendi, a man named Sinke, a great leader who was actually quite brilliant. And along the way, through the court proceedings, he began to pick up fragments of English. And one day, in the middle of the trial, as everyone is making their claims for these people, Sinke stands up and he says in broken yet clear English, give us us free. And he repeated it, give us us free. 
You missed it, that was about you. I wasn't talking about Sinke, because that is what happens in the soul of every human being who beholds Christ for all that he is and what he offers. And the soul cries out, give us, us free. The trial of the mandate would make its way up to the Supreme Court before they were set free. But how much more would it be she who cries out to Christ for freedom, be liberated by the courts of heaven, and hear the Savior say, for freedom, I have set you free. In Christ, we have freedom. Spirit fruit in the ordinary Christian life is freedom. Brothers and sisters, cease from your striving for perfection. Rest in the finished work of freedom that Christ has won for you. And then work from the rest of that freedom. Finally, see that spirit fruit in the ordinary life of the Christian is cultivated in the trenches of war, but rooted in the promise of victory. Now, while we are indeed free in Christ, it is a freedom we've been set free, yet we are daily called to daily war against the yoke of slavery to sin. Paul here envisions the ordinary Christian life to be a battle, a war, a constant struggle between the flesh and the spirit. See how Paul sets the stage very clearly for us in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, we learn a number of things in this text. The first, that there are two realms, the flesh and the spirit. The second is that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other. And the third is that the battle zone is at the desire level. And fourth, the battle manifests itself in action or inaction. The Christian life, therefore, is a constant battle at the most foundational level of our existence and actually affects specific actions. Now, understanding this is helpful on a few levels. First, it helps set our expectations as we live in this world. We are not living in a safe environment. Can I say that again? We are not living in a safe environment. Because we are not at peace with the flesh, or with sin, or the devil. So we face struggles, temptations, and even sin. And we need to be reminded that this is what the Christian life is all about. It's a struggle. But here's the thing, there is hope. Because true Christians never arrive, right? They, they, they never stop fighting. Real Christians never stop, never quit, always mindful that the battle rages on. And also, it helps us to be more vigilant. Complacency is spiritually deadly for Christians. We should live in the hope of the gospel, yes, but always with the somber realization of how quickly we can fall. There's a um, podcast I would recommend it for anyone aspiring to be a church planter or a pastor, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. My goodness, what a study 
in meteoric rise and just precipitous fall. And it reminds me, even as I aspire for this office of pastor, that I must be on guard against even the very sins in my own heart, the things that I would be subjected to and see, and that the desires of my flesh would want. We are constantly on guard. The normal Christian life is war, but there is good news at the war front. Because tucked neatly into this text is a promise. While the spirit fruit is cultivated in the trenches of warfare, it is rooted in a promise of victory. See there in verse 16 and 18. Walk in the spirit and you will not, will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, if you desire to not do the things that are characterized by the flesh, and if you're doing the things that are empty and broken and destructive and wrong, the solution is not found in your own strength or your own power. You see, when you walk by the Spirit or led by the Spirit and live in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, you see, the strength and allure of the flesh gets less and less, and less, and less, as the spiritual authority becomes greater, and greater, and greater, and greater. Walk in the spirit, and you will not. It's a guarantee. So take heart in the battle, brothers and sisters. Take heart in the struggle. When you're wondering whether this whole Christianity thing is worth it, whether it's really working, take heart when you ask, wait a minute, why is it worth it saying no to so many things that other people are saying yes to? Take heart in the battle because the Lord has already won the war. Because I flipped to the back of the book, y'all. I read the end of the story. And spoiler alert, we win. At the end of the battle, at the end of time, when the dust has settled, God and his people stand victorious. As Christ's death is our death and his life is our life, his victory is also our victory. Oh, praise Jesus. I wish I had two or three people who can testify with me that they are walking in the victory that Jesus Christ has won for them. Therefore, there is hope for the ordinary Christian because of all who belong to Jesus. You've been set up for daily victory over the flesh with its passions and desires. And you have ultimate victory over sin and death. Through Christ and in the spirit, we have a new identity. We have a new power. We have new desires. We have new virtues. We have new assistance to win the war with our flesh in everyday, ordinary Christian life. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory. We have victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Oh, thank you, Lord. Let us pray. Maybe that you've never experienced the ordinary Christian life because you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Prayer is that today you put your faith in Jesus and begin a life marked by freedom, forgiveness, and hope.
Maybe that you are a follower of Jesus, but you're here weary and tired because you have a wrong understanding what the ordinary Christian life is. Hope, our meditation this morning encourages you to keep walking, to keep fighting, to keep trusting. Maybe that you're here today and your Christian life is not working. Perhaps complacency, temptation, or sin has gotten the best of you. Well, I want to remind you that God's grace is always more powerful than your failures. Perhaps today you simply need to acknowledge that it's not working and ask the Lord to help you start walking again. Remember, Jesus bought your freedom and it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Lord God, may we experience that May we live that, and may we walk in that freedom. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.